I always feel the need of a of the right kind of transition into the morning in, into this portion of the morning. My concern oftentimes would be that we would perhaps discuss the most momentous events that the world has ever known, but that we might discuss them and become weary and almost weary in discussing them or accustomed to them or that we would not receive the full impact of what they really mean, what they really say to us. You know, sometimes we can become familiar with things. We become so familiar with things that we kind of just take them in stride. Oh, that we would never become so familiar that we would take these great events and this great message in stride because this is the greatest message that the world has ever heard. And some in the world have not heard this message. There are those in the world now who, if they were unable to hear this, would be so excited by it that uh, they could not contain themselves with the wonder of it. So may we be moved to the depths of our soul's spirit by the great truths. We're going to continue in the narrative given by Luke, Luke the evangelist, or Luke the physician, rather, opposed to evangelist, Luke the physician. We're going to continue with his uh, narrative this morning. But I'd like to begin with uh, maybe just a couple of questions, a question or so to all of us, myself included. Sometimes we, we ask, sometimes we ask each other how we're doing, and sometimes even the question how we're doing is kind of a question by rote. And sometimes we're really not that interested in it. We just say it because we need something to say. I don't want to say it that way to you this morning. I want to ask you this morning, and myself included in this, as we approach the end of this year, 2017, I want to ask this morning how you are doing. I want to know, I want to ask you to consider how you're doing. Not so much that you reply to me and respond to me in terms of how you're doing, nor I to you, but... Uh, it's imperative that we know how we're doing. It's imperative that we know where we are. Scripture admonishes us that we should examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. I believe we're going to look at this this morning as it, it presents itself from this passage of Scripture and how to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. And uh, there's one thing, and I believe we will touch on this this morning. It will just uh, It's not so much that we will talk about this, that it presents itself from the narrative. And this is what we want to focus on and leave this morning and leave with this and carry it with us and keep it in a very, very sensitive place within our heart and spirit and refer to it often. How do I examine myself? On what basis do I examine myself? How do I know how I'm doing? How do I know where I am? How do I know these things? How can I do these things? It's one thing for you to ask me, but is there any kind of criteria? Is there any kind of yardstick that I can use to measure, to see how I'm doing, where I am? And I would say there are many, and they're all found in God's Word, and they're not found in many of the things that we often resort to and refer to, but they're found in the Word, they're found in the Scriptures, as revealed and taught by the Holy Spirit, not as, as taught by me or by somebody else necessarily, but as the Holy Spirit teaches it. And there's one thing, and it would be this, and I refer to the psalmist as he said, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable unto you, O Lord, 
my strength and my Redeemer. And those are two things. The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Now in the New Covenant, those two are actually kind of turned around a little bit. And the emphasis in the New Covenant is turned around a little bit and it deals with the meditation of the heart first and the words of the mouth second. So when I asked this morning how you are and how you're doing, where are you in your walk with Christ and are you experiencing victory in your soul? I'm not thinking this morning about what we know cerebrally, what we know in our minds and all these things. I'm asking specifically about how are we doing in our spirit, the real you, the real me, where are we, how are we doing, where have we come from, where are we now, and where are we going? And so this is the criteria, I believe, is um, what is the meditation of my heart and what are the words of my mouth? What is the nature of the meditation of my spirit and what are the words of my mouth that confirm that meditation? And that will tell me this morning where I am and how I'm doing. And we're going to look at that this morning in the lives of Zechariah, the priest. Zechariah, the priest, the father of John, the Baptist, and the one whom we would expect to be spiritually on the right path, and his heart would be right with God. But when it came time to test, when it came time to test, the test came along. And the test came along just as he was about his normal routine in life. I don't want to call it a routine, but his normal course of events in his life. And he wasn't expecting the test to come in that particular day, but it did. When he was selected to offer the incense, the offering of incense in the holy place, and he was an old priest and never had been in that position before, and now for the first time he will be in that position Can you just imagine with me this morning the sense of elation, the sense that he felt, and yet he was about to be tested. He was about to be tested, experience a test. Now, no one came to him and said, you're going to be tested here in a few minutes, Zacharias. Get ready for the test. Let me just say that the tests come to us all the time. The test comes to us. Tests come to us. And they come to us when we are not expecting them. And they come to us in guises that we don't even recognize them as tests. But what they will test is the meditation of your heart followed by the words of your mouth. And sometimes there are meditations in the heart that must be resisted. Sometimes there are meditations, conclusions, thinking about something, dwelling on something, contemplating something in the heart. And the contemplation of it is not right before God, but we go through those periods of time where even we contemplate certain things. It's all right to contemplate something, but what are you going to do with it? How will it be treated at the end in finality? And the finality of it is the confirming of it, and how we confirm it is by what we say after we have processed and contemplated it. And so the psalmist said, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable unto thee, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. And may that be the case. I want to begin with a reading this morning. And this deals uh, with the word incarnation because our subject is the incarnation narrative, part two today. And we will proceed through this as we approach uh, 
the time of the year in which we especially celebrate the birth of Messiah. It says incarnation is a term used to indicate that Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh. The incarnation affirms his humanity. The word incarnation means the act of being made flesh. So the word incarnation means the act or the process of being made flesh. And it comes from the Latin version, John chapter 1, verse 14, which in English reads, the word, this is the Logos, we have talked quite a bit about the Logos in recent weeks. The Logos, or the word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. This is the incarnation. Incarnation. Not the beginning of his existence at all, of course, existed eternally as the Logos. But there comes a time when the Logos becomes flesh and makes his dwelling among us. And this is the incarnation. Biblical support for Jesus' humanity is extensive. The Gospels report Jesus' human needs, including sleep. He needed food. He needed physical protection. Other indications of his humanity are that he perspired, he bled. Jesus also expressed emotions including joy, sorrow, and anger. Holy anger? Holy anger. During his life, Jesus referred to himself as a man. And after his resurrection, his humanity was still recognized. But the purpose of the Incarnation was not to taste food or to feel sorrow. The Son of God came in the flesh in order to be the Savior of mankind. First, it was necessary to be born under the law, Galatians 4 and 4. All of us have failed to fulfill God's law. Christ came in the flesh under the law to fulfill the law on our behalf. Second, it was necessary for the Savior to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. A blood sacrifice, of course, requires a body of flesh and blood. And this was God's plan for the incarnation. When Christ came into the world, this is from Hebrews 10, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Without the Incarnation, Christ could not really die, and the cross has no meaning without the Incarnation. God did an incredible work in sending His only begotten Son into the world and provided us with a salvation we do not deserve or we do not earn. Praise the Lord for that moment in which the Word became flesh. There was a moment. When the Word became flesh, praise God for that moment. We are now redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus was both human and divine. And now we come to Luke chapter 1, verse 26 this morning, and we'll read a few verses, process a few of these verses this morning together. It says, in the sixth month, begins in the sixth month. And you say the sixth month, the sixth month of what? The sixth month of the pregnancy of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. 
And so when Elizabeth was six months pregnant, you remember last week we were told in this narrative that uh, she hid herself, Elizabeth hid herself for five months. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, who had visited Zechariah in the temple, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. And he was sent to a virgin who was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And he was, uh, Joseph was of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The betrothal was, uh, betrothal sometimes you might read it says engagement and so on, but the betrothal wasn't just like an engagement, a modern day engagement. Uh, today, when two young people who are planning to marry are engaged, there's a proposal being made at some point and there's an acceptance of the proposal there's a ring given, engagement ring and then an announcement is made that that, uh, these two young people are engaged to be married but the betrothal here is is uh, different and let me describe to you how it's different, there is a ceremony of betrothal it's a ceremony the ceremony is much resembles a marriage. But there's a ceremony of betrothal. And at the ceremony of betrothal, the groom presents a certain amount of money. You could call it a dowry, but it is a gift of money to the family of the bride. And there was a time when that was the property of the family of the bride, the father, but it, over time it became the possession of the bride herself. Following the betrothal, which was now a sacred contract that was entered into between the future groom and bride, but it was a sacred exclusive contract that was entered into that must not be broken or violated in any way. And the only way the betrothal could be broken or violated was through a process of divorce. A process of divorce would be required. So there was an attachment or there was a a pledge one to the other, much more significant than the modern-day engagement would be. And Mary had entered into this betrothal to a man named Joseph. And Joseph was was of the house of David, from the tribe of Judah. And says the angel came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. See, I, I, I wonder if it will show us, the the narration will tell us on what basis was the Lord with her, on what basis was Mary favored. She was favored. There are those who have come to a belief over the passage of the last 2,000 years, based on this passage of Scripture alone, that that she is favored. In other words, that she is a special grace given to Mary. And she is favored with the grace of God, And they combine this passage of Scripture with the passage in Genesis about the seed of the woman, you know, bruising the head of the serpent. And they combine those two passages of Scripture and then marry those two verses with a little bit of uh, tradition, traditional view. And there is a doctrine called the Immaculate Conception. 
and the doctrine, the belief on some, part of some, of the Immaculate Conception is that the mother of Mary, who they say, believe her name was Anna, that she uh, conceived Mary in this moment naturally, not uh, virgin-born, but that she conceived Mary through normal relations with her husband. And yet there was this wonderful grace that came during this conception so that Mary herself was born without any sin nature. Therefore, she would remain sinless during her life. And there was no nature to sin or sin nature. So Mary was sinless. And then this prepared or equipped Mary to be the mother of Messiah. Otherwise, the Messiah could not have been born in this sinless perfection state unless his mother was in this sinless perfection state. Now, this is a doctrine that is promoted by some denomination. But, of course, uh, there is no Bible for that. It's not a biblical doctrine, but it's a doctrine that's based on a couple of verses along with tradition. Now, what I, the reason I mentioned that this morning, that's the doctrine basically taught on the Immaculate Conception. Some think the Immaculate Conception has to do with uh, the birth of Jesus, but it doesn't. It has to do with the birth of his mother. So the virgin it's not the virgin birth. Immaculate Conception and virgin birth are two different things. The reason I mention that this morning specifically is not to you know, delight in disagreeing with a certain kind of teaching that exists. The reason I present that this morning is because I believe there's a way in which Mary was equipped and prepared to be the mother of Messiah. It wasn't necessary for any of this doctrine of Immaculate Conception to prepare her. And we're going to see this morning, I believe, what prepared and equipped her to be this mother. And so the angel came and said to her, Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. I want to say this morning, just as we begin, that this young woman is a wonderful young woman. Just wonderful. There's no need to endow on Mary something that Mary didn't possess. We don't have to use extraordinary means or rely on some mysticism or anything like this to come to the conclusion that Mary is very favored by God, that she's a woman, young woman, who's possessed with a marvelous spirit. I want to say that this morning I admire her spirit. I admire her heart. I admire her position before God. She was a young woman of faith. And that simply means she was a young woman who's the meditation of her heart and the confession of her mouth were right in the sight of God and had been. And this was the way she lived her life. The way she thought within her heart and the way she spoke about the things that she meditated upon in her heart were right in the eyes of God. And that's the way that you and I should be measured as well. That's the way we are measured. And when the tests of life come along, what's going to determine whether we pass those tests of life or not is determined by how we meditate and what way we meditate in our heart. It has nothing to do with the books we're reading, nothing to do with the television programs we're watching or any of that stuff. 
to the degree that some of those contribute and help us in our spiritual life, that's fine. But it has nothing to do with those things. It has everything to do with the way we ourselves process, meditate, process information, and think deeply within our spirit, and the way we confirm that by the words we speak. And so the angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, listen, you will conceive. And I want to ask you now to think with me this morning about when the very same angel, the same angel came and had a conversation with the priest, the elder statesman, if you like, or the elder priest, served God his entire life. And the scripture does tell us that he was faithful. Both he and his wife were faithful before the, the word and the revelation of God's will in their lives. It's not that they were, you know, of two minds or double-minded. It's just that there's a distinction being made now when it comes to the way in which their heart responds to the word of God. You can, people can be very faithful, you know, to traditions and very faithful in terms of the outward expression of religion. But how does our spirit respond to the word of God when it comes to me or you fresh in this moment? Some people would never miss a meeting. But when the word of God comes to them in an unexpected moment, in an unusual way, what do they do then? What do we do then? And so the angel announced that she would give birth to a son and that she should call his name Jesus This name, of course, in Hebrew is Joshua. Joshua. Jesus, Greek. Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. No end. And he already is king. And he has a kingdom, and we are invited to become subjects of his kingdom. And his kingdom has no end. And if we are a subject of his kingdom now, while we live and breathe in this planet Earth, and when our spirit leaves our body at some point in time as we age, according to the will of God for us, we go immediately into his presence, and we remain his subjects in a different state but we are his subjects now. Now it tells us in verse 34, and Mary asked the angel, she had a question for him. You remember Zechariah had a statement for the, for the angel as well. And Zechariah's statement to the angel was one of doubt. Because he had given up on the possibility of this happening. And he, in his mind and in his thinking, was, was full of doubt this can't happen. I need some kind of sign to indicate that I, to, for me to believe that this will happen. And you remember his speech was taken away from him for a period of, well, we said last week, 10 months perhaps. He couldn't speak. Now Mary, in hearing this information, and if the information was difficult for Zechariah to believe, how impossible could it be for Mary to believe? Because this is much more, just from the human standpoint, this is much more difficult to believe 
than it would have been for Zacharias to have believed. The angel to Zacharias was talking about he and his wife having a child. And Zacharias couldn't believe that. The angel is talking to Mary about Mary having a child and she is not, does not yet have a husband. She is betrothed to a man, but there's no intimacy yet until they marry. And they haven't married yet. But they are pledged to each other in a sacred bond already without the intimacy of sexual union. And Mary said to the angel, simple question, how can it be? How can this be since I do not have a husband? Is that a question of doubt? No, it's not a question of doubt. It's a question of, I'd like to know how that could happen because I'm not, I don't have a husband yet. It's a question of process. Process. But you see, the words of the mouth, see, this is what does it. It's the words of the mouth that confirm the meditation of the heart. That's why we've always said many times, and I'm, I'm, I'm always reminded of this in my private, personal, devotional life, I'm always reminded of this. Watch what you say, be careful what you say. You know, you may go through a whole process in your mind of thinking about things, but be very careful what you say. Because what you say will be your decision on what you have processed. I hold you responsible for what you say. Now I hold you responsible for the way you meditate and what you meditate on. Because what you meditate on will lead to what you eventually will say. But you haven't really committed yourself to the meditation of your heart yet until you say it. For good or for bad. And so she said, how can this be? Because I don't have a husband. I haven't been intimate with a man How can it be? How can it be? The angel does not reproach her, reprimand her at all. He explains it to her. She does not ask for a sign. John, she's just a young woman. I I mean, if we were to say how young she is, we would probably hesitate even to say, I don't know. She might be 15. You know what? She might be 14. You know what? She might be 13. I don't know. She might be 18. Oh, I'd be a lot more comfortable with her being 18. You know, it's not me to be comfortable. It's the, it's the times. You know, in that time, a young woman could marry at 12. Would you want your daughter marrying at 12? No, I don't think so. 13? No, I don't think so. 14? No, I don't think so. How about 15? I'm just saying this morning that she was a young woman. Zacharias was an elderly man. But her heart was right before God. What a wonderful young woman. She would be saved in terms of her eternal salvation or her salvation, which will be eternal on the basis of the merits of her son not on the basis of the merits of her mother or herself, but her son. And yet she has a wonderful heart before God. The angel answered her and he said to her, he said, uh, 
he answered her question directly. And then you'll notice what the angel did is he will provide for her a sign. Whereas Zacharias asked for a sign and was given one that he, you know, was really a judgment. She does not ask for a sign. She just wants to know how it can happen, on what basis. And he tells her, and then he will give her a sign. Let's read. The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High God, the power of the Most High, will overshadow you. Therefore the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Verse 36, And the angel continued, And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her, who was known as Elizabeth the Baron. You know, in the town and the village where she lived, Elizabeth, the mother of John. You know, there are different Elizabeths there. Elizabeth, so-and-so, Elizabeth, so-and-so. Oh, and uh, over there, that's uh, Zachary. Oh, that's Elizabeth the Baron. The inference from the word is that she was known and distinguished by her barrenness. You remember how that Elizabeth then would thank and cry out to God and say, Oh, I'm so, I'm so highly favored. I'm so thankful and grateful because you have removed this reproach from me, this burden that she had carried for many, many years. It could be 40 years she carried it. I don't know exactly how many years. It could be more. How would you like to be called, ladies? How would you like to be called that? Especially within a culture where barrenness was viewed as some kind of a judgment of God. Something about you wasn't right. And God knew it. That's the reason you're barren. And you have to carry that burden. And he called Elizabeth the barren. The angel said, Consider your relative. What kind of a relative was she? We don't know. A cousin? We don't know. Was Elizabeth her aunt? We don't know. Was Elizabeth a sister of Mary's mother? We don't know. See, there's all kinds of conjecture. I like to kind of indulge in a little bit of injecture, conjecture once in a while myself and think, but we have to be very careful and cautious about conjecture. Don't mix conjecture too deeply into your vocabulary other than in the sense of some say, and this could be, and so on and so forth. Just have to be a little cautious, that's all. It appears that she was a, a relative of Mary, so much so that when Elizabeth the Baron was mentioned by the angel to Mary, and Mary immediately knew who she was, and immediately knew where she lived, and immediately knew how to get to her house. <laughs> right? Now, this was a sign. Mary did not ask for this sign, but it was given to her. And so, for example, if Mary was to go and visit Elizabeth and find out the phone hadn't, hadn't rang with this information, that she had received no text message, there wasn't anything on Twitter about it. See, we live in this unusual time now. But Mary, there was no way for Mary to know this 
Elizabeth had concealed herself for five months. This is the sixth month. And the angel says to Mary, your near relative, Elizabeth, who's called barren and has been barren for all these years. She is six months now in a pregnancy with a child. And so for Mary to go and visit Elizabeth, right? If Mary would decide to go and visit Elizabeth, she will find out in a hurry, won't she? She'll find out. Not because she needs this to believe, but this is given to her freely by God. See, when people ask because of doubt, they don't receive anything from God. But when their heart believes the word of God, they will be given all kinds of favors from God. This is wonderful. And where are we in this? And the angel continued and said, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, I want to visit with you in just uh, for a moment the John chapter 1 and start in verse 11 and read through verse 13. And I want to compare, before we close this morning, I want to compare what happened here with Mary in terms of the incarnation and the moment in which Mary became pregnant with the Son of God, the Logos. And what precise moment was this? I've often wondered this myself. I've had a couple of thoughts on this. I, initially, I, I believe that it happened now because in a few moments I'm going to read as we close what Mary said to the angel. And my initial thought a few years ago was that in this precise moment that Mary said, be it done unto me according to your word, that was the moment when she received the word implanted, the Logos implanted within her womb. But I've had a couple of other thoughts more recently on this. But the main thing in this, whether it was exactly at this moment or whether it was a little bit later, we'll talk about that next Sunday. What I want to say is that she received the word by faith. She received the word by faith. The meditation of our heart in response to the word that came to her from the angel which came to her from God. The angel is the messenger. The word is God's word. And she believed the word of God in her heart. And she confessed the word of God, which she believed in her heart, confessed it with her mouth. And this is the way that you and I are saved. This is the way that the life of God enters into you and transforms your spirit and makes you a new creation in Christ Jesus is the same way that the Word entered into Mary. Same. Different, but the same. John chapter 1 and verse 11, He came to His own. This is talking about Jesus, Messiah. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. That's the Jewish people. But to all who did receive Him, he gave, and remember, he's the Word, right? The Logos. So he came to his own, his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name. And then it says this Who were born, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. 
your spiritual birth as becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus is it's not you're not born of of uh, of blood you're not born of the will of the flesh you're not born of the will of man but you are born of God and how in response to your believing and confessing you are born of God this is the way that Mary became pregnant with the logos of God and so in verse 37 of Luke chapter 1 the angel said nothing will be impossible to God And then Mary said these words, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel left her. Next Sunday we will come to the, just, I mean, it's just a wonderful time. This is is absolutely wonderful. What Mary does next, there's just so much here. We're going to look at next week. We're going to close by saying this morning that Two things are important for us. One is to believe how we believe in our heart. How do you believe in your heart? How do you believe in your heart? Do you think that believing in your heart, does anyone think that believing in their heart is, is, is somehow a leap of faith off a building? No, it's not that at all. It's got nothing to do with that. Do you think that believing in your heart, some think that believing in their heart is some irrational, a need for irrational belief of something? Is that? No, it's not that at all. Believing in your heart has everything to do with the condition of your heart, your spirit, and whether or not your spirit is receptive to the Word of God. The Word of God has its own evidence. The Word of God will prove itself many, many times in every conceivable way to you to be true. And if you have honest questions in your mind about different things, the Word of God will prove whether that question is right or wrong, or if there's some other solution. But we'll do none of those things unless there is a receptivity in the Spirit to the Word of God. Whether there's a receptivity in the Spirit has nothing to do with the intelligence as much as it has to do with the condition of the heart. The condition of the heart. So, that's what it means to believe in the heart. That's what Mary did. That's what John did not. Initially, he did not. She did. That's what qualified her to be the mother of the Son of God. It was the purity of her spirit, the willingness to admit the Word of God. It didn't matter what her mother was or how righteous her mother was or what happened when she was Life entered into her mother's womb. So number one is to believe in the heart. And then that followed by this. Confessing with the mouth. See, believing in the heart must be confirmed. It must be confirmed. This is the reason why people are urged to testify. But the testimony does no good unless it's the testimony that comes from a belief in the heart. You can get people to testify to things, just say, you know, say this, say this, I want you say this, say this. But it must be, the words that are spoken must be in agreement with what is believed in the heart. First of all, it's like, uh, you know, a business meeting where there's a motion made and then there's somebody who seconds the motion. And then there's a decision that says, somebody will say, Robert's rule, somebody will say, now this motion has been, mo- there's, this has been moved and it's been seconded. And now, therefore, everybody vote on it, and it says it's passed. 
<laughs> so believing in the heart is the motion, if you like. Could be compared to the motion. Confessing with the mouth could be compared to the seconding of the motion. But it does more than just second emotion. It confirms what is believed in the heart. So as we come to a close this morning, and we think about these wonderful events and the great moment that they are to us, essential this is to us, and nothing is more important to you or me this morning than where we stand before God and to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. And a person who is in the faith is a person whose heart is receptive to the Word of God. That's it. And a person whose heart is receptive to the Word of God and who then follows through by speaking those things that are in harmony and agreement with the Word of God that the Spirit has received. This is what was required. This was manifested in the life of Mary in a marvelous way. That's why she was chosen. That's why she was highly favored. And let me close by saying this wasn't the first time. It was not the first time that she believed the word of God and spoke it with her mouth. And that characterized her. And may that characterize you and me.